like a set list or anything. We just kind of follow the vibe of the room. So if you want to start thinking of some interesting questions, Make sure you beat out all those hip young millennials to get your tickets uh, for the Gunger concert. Uh, if you have no idea who Gunger is, which I suspect a good portion of us might be the case, um, uh, Tyler's queued up a song that will be a little more familiar to most of you, I think. You make beautiful things. You make okay. That's Gunger. So if you, that song's a little more familiar. And if you still don't know, you can come and learn some new ones, so fair enough. All right, well, I am not Gungor. I am Brian. I am one of the pastors here at the church, uh, if you're newer with us. And a uh, privilege to bring you today's message from Matthew chapter 17. So if uh, you have your Bible, you want to turn there. If you don't have a Bible, you'll see one here in this uh, West Auditorium in the pew rack in front of you. And then hello again to my friends over in the East Auditorium. Uh, there's some uh, Bibles roaming around, to which Pastor Jonathan claimed over there that they are the friendliest service of all the services. I don't know about that West Auditorium. That's, we can't really do anything about it because they're on the other side of a camera, but we'll, we'll see. We'll see who's friendly. You guys gonna be friendly today? Edge them out, be friendly to me here, okay? All right, so as you turn there, uh, just to give you some context as to what we've been looking at here, uh, over the summer is uh, in the book of Matthew, really the book of Matthew is uh, summed up, it's a biography. And it's a biography of the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. And the section that we're kind of camping out here in July is all as kind of we've moved to like, through, you know, Jesus comes in a manger, he grows up, he starts to do some miracles and some teaching. And we're getting to this place where more and more we're getting clarity on who this Jesus is through prophecies fulfilled and the miracles and his teaching. It's all starting to come to light. And this is an important thing because this Jesus is the one that we gather for every Sunday. Millions around the world gather to worship every Sunday. And then the other six days a week, supposedly, we follow. So if that's who's in charge, we want to know who's in charge pretty well. You, you would agree with this. Again, if in friendliness, you'd, you'd say, yes, yes, that's right. We need to know who this Jesus is whom we follow. And so... Up until this point, throughout the book of Matthew, Jesus, you could say his divinity, his glory, has been, you could say, veiled in humble expressions uh, of, of that of a human. There's a, a passage, of, like a poem in Philippians 2 that sums up what Jesus did as he stepped out of his kingly throne in heaven to a manger that we celebrate each Christmas. Philippians 2 says it this way. It says, Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God... He did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, something to be grasped is another translation. Really, what this is saying is Jesus chose to leave his, some of his divine powers in heaven as he subjected himself, uh, verse 7, rather to, to humankind. To, he made himself nothing, being in the very nature a servant, being made in human likeness. 
I love the way that theologian Soren Kierkegaard, try saying that German name, uh, paints, he, he paints kind of a modern day parable of the movement uh, of the expression that Jesus made in coming from his kingly eternal throne in heaven to that of um, a man. He says it this way, once upon a time, a prince fell in love with a peasant maiden. The prince desired to marry the peasant maiden, but he also wanted her to respond in joyful love. Although the prince knew that he could technically overwhelm her with power and glory, uh, essentially terrifying her into submission, that would not result in true love. And so at last, the prince decided he had only one option. He must become a peasant. He must become a peasant. And the transformation, it couldn't be just an act or a mere disguise. To, to forego his kingly pomp and power, he had to do that in every respect. He had to become a peasant in every respect. He would need to wear peasant clothes, perform peasant labor, eat peasant food, and share in all the peasant joys and sorrows. And in this way, he could woo and win her heart and then experience genuine love. And so really that modern day parable is a snapshot of exactly what the God of the universe did for us. He humbled himself, although the king and the creator of all of us and of all things, Philippians 2 goes on to poetically paint this out, says that he was being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. So not just humanity, but even God subjecting himself to death and even death on a cross. Uh, but now we know the other side of that story. That's not the end of the story. That three days later, j just as we sang a little bit ago, that, you know, that it looked like death had won, that evil had won the victory. But then all of a sudden, three days later, Jesus comes in his glory. He rises from the dead, his resurrection to new life, affording us a new life. Okay, and so that's, that's really the, the pinnacle of the story of Matthew, which you know what happens because you've been to an Easter service before. But what we see happening today in our passage in Matthew 17 really um, is tied to that resurrection and that you could say today is like a sneak peek preview, like a, a little foreshadow of what's going to happen several chapters later in Jesus' resurrection. We're going to get a, a glimpse of that glory that has otherwise pretty much been veiled in human flesh and blood. We haven't seen a lot of his godly divinity shine forth like we're going to see in this story. So that's what we're looking for. Jesus' divinity on display in a way that hasn't been on display through the first 16 chapters of Matthew. Experience that story with me, friendly West Auditorium and East Auditorium friendly as well, starting in verse one. Here we go. It says, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves. There, he, Jesus, was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then, there appeared before him, or before them, Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, and they were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, 
Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Okay. So again, what we see in this story is Jesus' divinity, unlike any other place in the point of Matthew up until this point, is, is put on display. And, and his human body is transfigured, transformed, and we see this God-like nature coming from his face and from his clothes. And so this is the most we're going to get to see this until the resurrection. And the point of this story um, ultimately is to point to Jesus' divinity. But then when you look at the disciples, that's where we come into play. That, you know, what is the point of this story as it relates to those he invited up the mountain, Peter, James, and John, and now you could say he's inviting us up the mountain to share in this story. What's applicable for us today is that just like Jesus invited these three disciples up the mountain to experience his glory, God still today, he is inviting us on a journey to experience his glory. You could say that he brought these three disciples on. You could say like a mini pilgrimage. Uh, a pilgrimage is essentially a spiritual, well, it's a journey for a spiritual purpose. A pilgrimage is a journey for a spiritual purpose. So he takes them on this pilgrimage and that can be a journey that's figurative or a journey that's, that's, that's actual. It can actually go somewhere. And, and that's, that's applicable for us because God is consistently and constantly in our lives inviting us on a journey. He's inviting us on journeys, on pilgrimages to discover his glory at work within our lives. And so what we want to do here in John, or it's not John, Matthew 17, is we want to, you could say, figuratively step into the sandals of Peter, James, and John. We want to step into their pilgrimage, step into their journey up the mountain to discover what we might discover in their experience of Jesus' glory in our own lives. Okay, so we're going to do that. We're going to go on a journey together. We're going to pilgrimage. Is that a verb? Can you pilgrimage? It's just a, let's pilgrimage together. Okay, here we go. All right, first. In order to start out on a pilgrimage, in order to start out on a journey, we have to take the first step. We have to, very firstly, we have to actually set out on the journey. We see this in our story right in verse 1. It says that after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves. Okay, so they're intentional. They're going to take the step up the mountain and see what God might have for them. And so that happens in our day. Um, sometimes that takes the form of, a, of an actual physical journey, like say a mission trip. We just had um, several high school students uh, come back from Cuba uh, doing a mission trip there, a pilgrimage there. We right now have on the other side of the planet where they're going to bed in Kenya, uh, a medical missions stream uh, from our church making a difference over there. But in that pilgrimage, we would suspect and expect that even though God is working through uh, you know, our folks in Kenya and worked through our friends in Cuba, that those who are returning also experience that God did something in them too, that he's taking them on an experience as well. And so sometimes we actually physically go across an ocean to uh, step into a journey, but you don't, have to, you don't necessarily have to travel far. I would argue that every time that you step into a new opportunity of ministry here, just in the life of the church, you know, we exist to develop devoted followers of Jesus Christ as a church by growing and serving together. So every time you step into a grow together group or you step into using your gifts that God wants to work in you and through you, you're stepping out on a journey to develop in your devotion, to take the journey with Jesus Christ, to see what he might do to reveal his glory in you through that particular pilgrimage in that way. Also, I would say that sometimes the journey, even though we step out on it, 
um, we might look back and realize we've stepped out onto it without intentionally having done so. Sometimes we just find ourselves in the midst of a journey. Uh, for some of us, that comes in the place of maybe we've just been, you know, mundanely attending worship, you know, week after week after week. And you remember this one worship experience, whether through song or sermon, where God just got a hold of your heart and you knew that something was different now. That coming out of this room, out of the East Auditorium, that God had a new journey for you, new plans from what he was doing within you. You didn't set out that day necessarily to expect something, but he did something. Sometimes the journey up the mountain um, actually disguises itself in a step down into a valley. And that going to the mountaintop experience sometimes means getting out of the valley. And so maybe the first step on your journey uh, is, a, is a diagnosis or a family crisis um, or a job shakeup or an unexpected death. In all of these things, you either intentionally or realize you have stepped into the first step of a journey with God, that you, you're not sure all that's gonna happen, but you know that you're an expectant that God will show up in the midst of this, okay? But we have to either recognize that step's taking place or take that first step. I remember this took place for me personally um, when I was first hired here at the ripe old age of 22 to be the youth pastor at this church. And um, I, I'll be honest, I struggled. I mean, the first year here, um, struggled with depression. And I think it was just part of like being a kid that was growing up and moving away from home and just got married and, you know, trying to, I think I was adulting. I think that's a verb adulting. I was adulting and I was, I was really struggling. And I remember um, talking with Pastor Wayne uh, one day and he said this statement that I don't think he meant for it to uh, kind of sear in my, my mind the way it has, uh, but it's a statement that has served me trial after trial after trial ever since. And I hope it serves you the same. It's this statement. He said, in the midst of all that I was going through, he said, Brian, just whatever you do, don't miss what God is trying to teach you in this. Don't miss what God is going to teach you in this. And, um, and, and that's been applicable for me. Um, so it's fun. He gets to get quoted and he's not even preaching. So um, kudos to him. And so in our life, we are going to be given these invitations. We are going to be these invitations that we don't want to miss. We don't want to miss that first step into what God has for us so that we might not then miss what God wants to do in our lives, how he wants to teach us and reveal his glory just like he did on the mountain, how it wants to reveal his glory to us. Which really brings us to, you could say, our next um, phase of our journey, the next phase of our pilgrimage, is that when we step into that journey, we should, secondly, we should expect that God is going to teach us something. We should expect that the glory of God is going to be on display. We should expect to experience the glory of God because that's God fulfilling his promise to us, that he will put on display his glory in our lives. So we should expect that from him, that we would experience him. We certainly see this in the case of uh, the disciples on the mountain. Look again with me at verse two. Look at their experience with God. It says, there he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. And so Jesus, he is physically transformed before their eyes. And remembering, the whole point of this is to reveal more and more in Matthew, who is this Jesus? And we're seeing pretty clearly that he is divine. He is God in the flesh in this radiant, glorious way. And what's interesting about that is in verse one, uh, you might recall he said, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. So as we look at Jesus' glory, and we're looking at this, you want to ask, okay, six days after what? Six days after what before this glory is revealed? Well, 
after six days of what we talked about as a church seven days ago. And if you weren't here with us, it's the story at the end of Matthew 16 going into 17 where Jesus says to Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter gets it right. He says, you're the Messiah. To which then Jesus clarifies, okay, just so you know, that means I'm going to suffer, I'm going to sacrifice, and I'm going to be killed. And it's kind of like, whoa, you're God, and that's your story? But as we know on the other side of it, that's not the end of the story. We experience in Matthew 17, the other side of that coin, six days later, that Jesus' glory is on display, that he is God in the flesh, and that's going to come out in its full glory, of course, on the resurrection three days after his death. Okay, like Jesus says in verse nine, after the son of man has been raised from the dead. And so we see in their journey, Peter, James, and John, they are experiencing the glory of Jesus on display. This dramatic transformation revealing that Jesus is indeed God in this whole new way that they haven't seen yet. Okay, so this is a pretty big mountaintop experience and it gets even better. Verse three, just then appeared before them Moses and Elijah. And they were talking with Jesus. Now, I looked at the commentaries. I don't know how they knew that this was Elijah and Moses. Uh, if I was to write the commentary, maybe, you know, they showed up with name tags or, you know, like t-shirts with their faces on it. I, I don't know how they knew it was them, but the reality is, is that it was them. They've been gone a long time and now they're on the scene. These two gigantic heroes of the faith. For these Jewish guys, these were huge celebrities in their faith, Moses and Elijah. And so what is the significance of this? I mean, isn't Jesus glory enough? Why do we need Moses and Elijah? Well, again, and this is where it gets really good. Um, and that is remembering the whole section of Matthew, the whole book of Matthew is revealing who Jesus is as God. And so earlier in Matthew chapter five, when, uh, or in Matthew in, the, in chapter five, uh, Jesus is beginning to tell people why he came and who he is. And he says it this way, uh, he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so 12 chapters earlier, Jesus is saying, I've come to fulfill all the law and all the prophets. And so catch this, what we have in Moses and Elijah, you have Moses who lived 1400 years prior to this event and Elijah who lived 900 years prior to this event. Moses, his role was he penned the first five books or the majority of the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, which is uh, essentially what we call the law. It means the Torah, the law, where we have the 10 commandments that Moses gives us, as well as more than 600 other laws uh, that all sum up the law. Moses, in Moses, we have the law. Then with Moses, we also have Elijah. And Elijah, he was considered one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. So in Elijah, you have the representation of all the prophets. And so what you have taking place in this moment is this culmination of that teaching in real time, where Peter and James and John, they're experiencing Moses, Elijah, all the law and all the prophets represented right there with Jesus, of which he is the fulfillment of. Pretty cool stuff. Pretty cool stuff that's going on in that situation. And Peter, he knows this is cool stuff. Again, as a, his Jewish roots, you know, all the teachings that Jesus has given, and now Jesus is radiating himself as God. He's got, you know, prophets and law. It's all right there. Peter knows this is awesome. And you know what? He wants to hold on to this moment. He doesn't want to let it go. And so Peter in an effort to hold on to this moment, to not let this physical moment disappear, this spiritual moment disappear, this mountaintop experience, he blurts out 
in verse four. Look with me again. He says, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Essentially, what Peter is saying, hey, I think this right here would make a really great grow together small group. I think this would be great. You know, John and James, we're tight fishing buddies, so they're gonna be good in the group. And uh, you know, Jesus, we all voted. We think uh, you'd be a great candidate to lead the group uh, for obvious reasons. Moses and Elijah, man, I tell you, when we get to those tough questions about like the old laws and like all the weird things that the prophets did, hey, you'll be great to answer those questions since well, you wrote the books of the Bible on these things. So, you know, you're in the group. And so this group, it's just gonna be the awesomest grow together small group ever. And see, the only problem is, is it's so awesome that, you know, if we go down the mountain, then everyone's gonna know how awesome our small group is. And then everyone's gonna wanna be in our small group. And then our small group will be a large group, which isn't a small group. And so I tell you what, uh, Jesus, I'll uh, hop online. I'm gonna Amazon Prime some, uh, some tents right up to the top of the mountain. We'll have them here in two days. And um, free shipping, it's great. And uh, each of you will get your own. We don't have to share tents. Remember what I said in verse four, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Uh, so we've got tents. Uh, we're not gonna need flashlights. You know, Jesus, you just do like your glory thing and we'll be, you know, we can shine and all that good stuff. You know, you got uh, Elijah, I remember that story in the Bible where like, didn't something like birds bring you some food or something like that, you know? Cue that up and you know, you can be in charge of small group snacks and it's just, it's gonna be great. We're gonna camp, we're gonna eat, and we're just gonna have grow together small group forever. That's just me adding on to the story a little bit. That's not, it's not in there. You're not gonna find that. But that's what Peter wanted to do. He wanted to, he wanted to freeze frame this mountaintop experience. He wanted to hold on to it to last forever. And the truth is, we too are tempted by these same things. We too are tempted to want to hold on to a mountaintop experience and never let it go. Um, we want to, you know, maybe it's a camp or a conference or, you know, coming back from a mission trip for you guys who came back from, it's tough because it's like, this is great, this is utopic, it's a mountaintop experience and it's, it's difficult to come back and you want to hold on to that experience. Or maybe for a lot of people, I see it's not so much a mountaintop event, but sometimes we look back and idolize maybe a mountaintop season. Maybe there was a mountaintop season in our life where, you know, God was really at work and, you know, we're always trying to recreate or remanufacture it. Um, I think I see this the most practically where a lot of us can relate to is uh, for some of you, like what I see is like if you move away, I hear this all the time, people will move away uh, and they end up trying to find another church and they kind of bounce around for a long time and they come back and visit and they just say, I just, we just can't find a church that's home like first Christian was home. Or on the inverse, maybe you're here today and you moved to town or you moved here for whatever reason you're here and it's like, you know, yeah, it, we're here, but it's just not like it was at so-and-so. Or maybe it was a period in time when we used to do it this way and we could be tempted to idolize what God did before rather than trust God for that mountaintop experience is what it was, be thankful for it, and then from there trust that God wants to do a new thing in a new place as he continues to make you a new creation. We are, we are tempted by this and, and be encouraged. That's the way it's supposed to be, that God doesn't want to redo a version of something that happened before. He wants to give you new journeys, new mountaintop experiences, new opportunities to experience the glory of God. And so we're thankful for those experiences 
but then we move on from those experiences so that we can experience new things that he wants to do in our lives. We don't idolize the past. And so with that, as we understand, just as Peter's gonna realize here pretty quick because God just cuts him off, which is kind of funny. He's like, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covers him and says, you know, Peter, just stop. Um, and so sometimes we used to say stop. We say, okay, so if the point is not to live life on the mountain, we can't live on the mission trip, we can't live at camp, we can't live in the past, then we must understand, just as Peter eventually does, if life isn't lived out on the mountain, what then is the point of the mountaintop experience? And so we have to, from there, make plans to come down the mountain. We have to make plans to come down the mountain. All right, we see this play out in this story here. Verse five, it says again, while, while Peter was still blabbering on about his perfect grow together small group, a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love with him. I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. God's voice, he sets everything straight because again, this is the point of Matthew. We're identifying who this Jesus is, whom we follow, who we worship, who our whole life is supposed to be about. And so for us to understand why we're on the mountain and to understand that we don't idolize the mountain, we have to understand why we were there in the first place. And essentially it's so that we can, in listening to Jesus, come down from the mountain and kind of the last move of our of our journey is to realize that the point of experiencing God on the mountain, the point of experiencing the glory of God, the point of experiencing the transfiguration of who this Jesus in our life is so that we would then experience transformation. The point of Jesus' transfiguration is that it leads to our transformation. Now that just might sound like a really cute little like preacher word thing, like transfiguration leads to our transformation. But actually in the original language here in the Greek, those words were the same. This is the same Greek word translated two different ways. It's the word metamorpho, uh, which is where we get the word metamorphos. And so the word's used four times in the New Testament. It's used twice in Matthew and Mark, both telling the same story. So in some ways you could say it was used just this one time, talking about Jesus' transfiguration. Then the other two times this word metamorpho is used, this transfiguration word, is in two letters written to churches from the Apostle Paul after the resurrection, after the glory of God's been fully displayed through that. Catch this, Romans 12. It says it this way, to us, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be metamorpho. It, it literally means to change and transform the substance, the uh, substantive nature, I should say, substantive or essential nature of something to completely be transformed, be transformed, be transfigured by the, the renewing of your mind, of God's renewing of who you are by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Second Corinthians says it essentially the same way. He says, and we all who with unveiled faces, meaning there's no longer a veil over us between seeing what Jesus did because we know what happens in the resurrection. It says, contemplate or dwell on the Lord's glory. Think of the Godness of God's glory and through that be transformed. You're being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the spirit. And so the Lord is the spirit, which is God at work inside of us. 
So here's what Matthew's pointing us to. This is what we've been learning and working our way through the whole gospel, through the whole book. Who is this Jesus? He's been being transfigured from a baby in a manger to a young boy who grew in wisdom and stature, it says, with, with God and man. And then from there, he starts doing miracles and teaching and, and revealing more and more to this point in Matthew 17, where we actually see the glory of God. We see him transfigured. We see that this Jesus is God in the flesh and therefore his transfiguration leads to our transfiguration. Transformation. And what does our transformation look like? God says it of his son. He's speaking to the disciples. He says, this is my son whom I'm well pleased. He's not talking to Jesus anymore. He's obviously talking to the disciples and now us. He says, listen to him. Verse five, listen to him, listen to him. And so that's how we live out transformation. We live out a life that listens to him, that follows him, that obeys him as the Lord and the leader of our life. And so if I were to conclude for us uh, in our time here, okay, so what then does that look like? How do, do we listen to Jesus? How do we follow him? How do I obey him? And I were to boil it down to just say, okay, just do two things. Just do, there's two outs, two outs. There's two things, just two things that Jesus would say um, for us to listen to him, to obey him. And that would be the two things that actually Jesus pointed to. He was asked the same question. Someone asks him in a couple chapters later that we'll see in Matthew 22. Someone asks him, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law, to which Jesus gives him two. Verse 37, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, that this is the first and greatest commandment, and that the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so, and what I love about this is verse 40. Look again, we got Moses and Elijah on the scene again. All the law and all the prophets hang on these two commands. Every law that Moses ever gave us in the law and every prophecy prophesied by the prophets represented in Elijah, you want to sum it up, love God with everything you are and love others just the way that you would love and take care of yourself. It's in these two commands. It's in listening and following Jesus in that way that we then are, again, Romans 12, being transformed by our renewing and 2 Corinthians 3, that we are being transformed into his image by the Holy Spirit that's at work within us. It's cool stuff. There's a lot going on in experiencing this journey that the disciples took and seeing where we then fit in our journeys where God's glory is being revealed and where he wants to live it out in our transformation, both for us and for others. And so as I was thinking about how to kind of wrap this sermon and service up, uh, I was kind of done at this point. I'm like, do I just pray? Is this it? Is that, that's kind of the point? Go listen to Jesus and be transformed. Um, but I didn't. And I, I, I kind of put it out at a staff meeting. I said, hey, here's what I'm talking about, how we're all going to be transformed by loving God, loving others. And I'm trying to figure out how we should end the service. And so I said, hey, if any of you team members have an idea that I use in the sermon, you win a candy bar. That's about all I got. And so, and it wasn't going to be one of those fun size candy bars. It's not like trick or treat. And I was going to give them like a legit candy bar, which I think we all would agree is way more fun. Yes? Okay. And so I put it out there and um, I, got, uh, I got, I would say two winners. We've got two winners today. And the first winner uh, that made it into the sermon, I got to back up a little bit to the week. Um, you might've heard on the news or through the grapevine or Facebook or something like that. We had a bit of an extravaganza here in our church parking lot here this past Tuesday. Um, if you were like, if you're like not connected at all, um, this is what happened. Essentially a van was involved in like seven hit and runs, I think it was. And uh, then began to 
to enter into a high-speed chase that ended uh, wiping out our entrance sign in the parking lot. You might have noticed the jankety thing that we had put up because this nice van wiped it out. Uh, and this, and this gal, and no one was hurt, so everyone should know that. Um, so no one was hurt, and the gal, it was a lady driving, she comes in flying her vehicle is on fire so literally flaming into the parking lot to where it comes to rest and then it proceeds to explode explode into flames i mean it was it was incredible uh, the police were there fire trucks were there you know bruce willis from all 17 diehard movies was there it was the greatest tuesday at church ever it was amazing and so I had just put out this candy bar opportunity, like literally like three hours before this happened to the staff. And so I get this text from Thomas Hagen, who just did the baptism here a little bit ago, uh, shortly thereafter. This is a text, a screenshot from my phone. He says, for the message this weekend, God's love for you should be like a consuming fire, just like the van set on fire in our parking lot this week. Reese's Nutrageous. <laughs> and so I sent him appropriately the little like, you know, emoji with like, I'm laughing so hard that tears are flying out of my face, um, which honestly, I always feel a little disingenuous sending that one because I mean, Thomas, wherever you're at, it was funny, but there were no tears. I just, it just is what it is. But in all application, all seriousness, you know, I would ask the question, where are you in your journey? Are you on fire for God? You see that, how I worked that in for you all? I work hard on this stuff. Are, yeah, are you on fire? Are you on a mountaintop experience where God is doing some amazing things in your life? Don't hold on to it forever. You can't hold on to it forever. The question then is, what does God want to teach you through this? What does he want to do in you and through you as you come down the mountain? That might be where you're at today. Maybe for you, if you're honest, outside of the laughs of you know, all this, whatever, and you walk out of this room that you came in from and you're walking back out into a very deep valley. Um, it's a dark valley and the only mountain you get to climb is the one that gets you out of this valley. And maybe the step for you is to trust the Lord has promised that he is faithful, that his strength is strongest when we are weak and that he will see you through whatever that valley is. And so maybe that's where you're at in your journey. Maybe um, you just say, I'm just kind of going nowhere. I'm just kind of stalled or stuck or stagnant. I had lunch with a young man uh, not too long ago where I said, you know, where, I just kind of use this language. I said, well, you know, where are you at in your journey with God? And he thought about it and he said, I guess you could say I'm kind of sitting on the bench. Sitting on the bench, which what he meant was, you know, I'm just nothing. I'm just kind of doing nothing. I'm just kind of stuck. I'm stale. And so the question for you is maybe you need to step out into, you need to be intentional in stepping out on a journey with God from a staleness to discovering what he wants to do in your next phase of the journey. Maybe for you, it's getting into his word on a regular basis. Uh, maybe it's kind of getting off the bench, kind of use the sports analogy version and, and using the abilities that God's given you to serve, to jump into a serve together deal and find out what God wants to do in you and through you in that way, okay? Because remember, all of this, we are being transformed that we might go and transform. Um, or to quote the movie, Transformers, Autobots, Transformers, transform and roll out. You gotta like transform, isn't that how it goes? Someone help me out here, it's been a while. Uh, tra tra trans okay, this is taking too much. No one cares. No one cares. We are being transformed in order to transform. I thought it would work, but it's not working, so all right.
And so as we are commissioned in this to live lives that are being transformed, that we might be transformers in other people's lives, um, another winner, I guess you could say, came from Lacey and uh, Morgan, who just said, hey, you know, really, this loving God and loving others, that's really how we end many of the services here at the church, that every time uh, we worship God, we're expressing our love to him, and when we pray for others, that's a great way to show our love. And so that's how we're gonna wrap up our time here uh, with this sermon. So I'm gonna invite you to stand with me, and we're gonna do that. We're gonna live out those two greatest commands. We're gonna love God, we're gonna give credit where credit is due by singing his praises. And then with that today, um, while usually you could say that the prayer time in this, we have leaders at the front of the room who uh, are happy to pray with you for the needs in your life. Today, let's shift the focus. And let's say, how could we live out that second great command to love someone else by praying for someone else here today. And so maybe you have someone in your life who's going through a valley that you wanna pray, you know, God sees them through that. Uh, maybe it's a situation where you have a family member or friend who doesn't even know the saving power of Jesus Christ. You don't have a relationship with God and you wanna pray that they would know him both in this life and eternally. Maybe what it means for you to pray for someone else, I thought about this, it's kind of a, kind of a, a surprise in some ways, is to actually pray for the person you least expected you would pray for here today. And that is to take Jesus at his directive, at his command, at his promise to love and pray for your enemies. And so maybe there's an enemy that you need to lay that over to God by praying for that person. Maybe there's unforgiveness that has taken place and you need to extend forgiveness, realizing that just as the Lord has forgiven us our debts, we need to forgive our debtors. And you need to set the captive free. That's a great phrase for forgiveness. You need to set the captive free and realizing that the person being held captive and the person not being set free is actually you by being free of that bitterness. And so that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna, number one, greatest command, worship God, love God. And with that, let's love others by praying for someone else in our life here today. Let me pray for us in this. Father in heaven, we are thankful for the glory that has been put on display uh, in your son, Jesus, his transfigurations. We have seen him transforming chapter by chapter in Matthew and realizing and learning more and more of who he is so that we can then understand more and more of how he wants to then transform us in our lives. Father, we now, uh, in our expression of that reality, we worship you and also to live out that love to one another. We wanna pray for some other people, whether in the privacy of uh, our own seats or maybe up front with someone else. God, we wanna love you. We wanna love others because you said that's what matters most. And as Father said to your son, we wanna to listen to him. And so may we, both in this space in the next few minutes, but also more importantly, in uh, the daily living of our lives. We need your help by that. That's why you give us the Holy Spirit in whose name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.